The title of tonight's talk is called The Lion's Roar. The Divine Abidings. In Pali, the Brahma Viharas, which are also sometimes called <coughs> the Immeasurables. Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative or empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each of these, all of these, are perfectly natural, absolutely natural aspects of our humanness. Perfectly natural, and in that sense, ordinary. And at the same time, extraordinary capacities of being. In their maturity, they're some of the capacities of a Buddha, a liberated being. As these qualities, as these capacities of being, of heart, take deeper root and grow <clears throat> and flower and fruit, any one of us, may experientially touch, may experientially know the purity of metta, this immeasurable capacity of heart, of mind. We may know it at any moment in its purity, maybe just sustaining for the duration of the snap of a finger. Or we may have the experience of metta abiding more continuously. The heart's release, the liberation of the heart. Shakyamuni Buddha talked about it as making one a truly spiritual person. This evening I'd like to explore some of the particulars primarily of metta, unconditional loving-kindness, and how it helps to develop and sustain the ability to respond, the ability to respond rather than react to what life offers, whatever it may be. This capacity to respond from the heart of immeasurable impartiality, embracing impartially all sentient beings, not just those who are close to us, who are close in our lives, or those who are useful to us for, in some ways, not just those who are pleasing or amusing to us, but all sentient beings, impartially, impartial immeasurable impartiality, embracing with our heart. This is from uh, Krishnamurti's meditation journal. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything, 
Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. It's as though the mind enters into itself, beginning at the surface and penetrating ever more deeply until depth and height have lost their meaning and every form of measurement ceases. In this state, there's complete peace. Not contentment which has come about through gratification, but a peace that has order, beauty, and intensity. It can all be destroyed, as you can destroy a flower. And yet, because of its very vulnerability, it's indestructible. Metta, unconditional loving kindness, unconditional friendship, it's been called the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. And the Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment of the heart, of the mind, fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. Meaning a moment when the sense of separation, the sense of distinction, sense of difference, any sense of discrimination has disappeared, is absent even just for a moment. This can be called love. Metta. And it's the ground, it's the bed for all of the other divine abidings to spring from. And really it's the ground that allows the whole of our practice to unfold from and into this core, this bed of kindness, this core of kindness and patience in relation to ourself and in relation to others. The Buddha spoke a lot about patience in, in many different ways. One of the things he said was that there's no higher rule than patience. He said there's no nirvana, no freedom higher than forbearance. He said, no greater thing exists than patience. Forbearance, in this sense, isn't the attitude of kind of putting up with it, or this attitude of toughing it out, or getting through it. But it's the quality of softness of acceptance, softness and receptivity. This patience, metta, kindness, the generosity of the heart, this quality brings us to abide in our life, which includes our meditation practice, in a way that allows us to approach 
and to receive, to open to, to really be fully present in the moment, each moment. To be here in each moment with a true openness and a respect, honoring the moment, no matter what we're facing within ourselves or around us. To forbear in this sense, this is what the Buddha meant by forbearance. And it's a very strong, very clear place. The practice of metta is a very powerful way of introducing the heart, the mind, to patience. It's a very clear way of cultivating a patient, loving heart. And really coming to know in an experiential way that this is an advantage, that this is a great benefit in one's life. There's a beautiful story in one of the suttas, the Anguttara Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya Sutta. It's the story of Shariputra, the, one of the closest disciples, closest disciples of the Buddha. It's the story of Shariputra's lion's roar. And it really clearly uh, shows us this strength of uh, metta. It was after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat during the time of the Buddha. And all of the monks were dispersing after this rainy season retreat to go to their various responsibilities and duties, some of them in other places. One monk came up to the Buddha and reported to Shakyamuni Buddha that Sariputra was, as Sariputra was leaving, that um, this monk had tried to ask him a question, but Sariputra, without answering the question, had pushed him down to the ground, and he hadn't apologized. Well, upon hearing this, the Buddha summoned Sariputra to come before, actually, the assembly of all of the monks uh, and nuns that uh, were still there, and asked him if this was true. And this was Shariputra's response. Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddhist son who became a monk. When he was 18 years old, you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire and air, in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed to Rahula, I also learned from it, and I've tried to observe and practice that teaching. Lord, I've tried to practice like the earth. The earth is wide and open and has the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform. Whether people toss pure and fragrant substances, such as flour, perfumes, or fresh milk upon the earth, or toss unclean and foul-smelling substances like excrement, urine, blood, mucus, and spit upon the earth, the earth receives them all equally, without grasping, 
without aversion. No matter what you throw into the earth, the earth has the power to receive, to embrace, and to transform it. I try my best to practice like the earth, to receive without resisting, complaining, or suffering. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, could knock down a fellow monk and leave him lying there without apologizing. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, to push him down to the ground and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I've learned the lessons you offered to Rahula to practice like water. Whether someone pours a fragrant substance or an unclean substance into the water, the water receives them all equally without grasping or aversion. Water is immense and flowing and has the capacity to receive, contain, transform, and purify all things. I've tried to bet my best to practice like water. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I practice to be more like fire. Fire burns everything, the pure as well as the impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, without grasping, without aversion. If you throw flowers or silk into it, it burns. If you throw old cloth and other foul-smelling things into it, the fire will accept and burn everything. It doesn't discriminate. Why? Because fire can receive, consume, and burn everything offered to it. I've tried to practice like fire. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of looking, listening, and contemplating might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. Lord, I'm not such a monk. I've tried to practice to be more like air. The air carries all smells, good and bad, without grasping or aversion. The air has the capacity to purify to transform and release. Lord Buddha, I've contemplated the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. A monk who does not practice mindfulness might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. I'm not such a monk. My Lord, I'm like an untouchable child with nothing to wear, with no title or any medal to put on my tattered cloth. I've tried to practice humility because I know that humility has the power to transform. I've tried to learn, in every, I've tried to learn every day. A monk who does not practice mindfulness can push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. My Lord, I'm not such a monk. Shariputra continued to deliver his lion's roar. The other monk could stand it no longer, and he bared his right shoulder, knelt down, and begged for forgiveness. And this is what he said. Lord, I've transgressed the Vinaya, which is the monastic rules of discipline. Out of anger and jealousy, I told a lie. I tried to discredit my elder brother in the Dharma. 
I beg the community to allow me to practice and begin again. In front of the Buddha and the whole Sangha, he bowed three times to Shariputra. When Sariputra saw his brother bowing, he bowed. He bowed back and he said, I've not been skillful enough, and that's why I have created misunderstanding. I'm co-responsible for this, and I beg my brother monk to forgive me. And then he bowed three times to the other monk, and they reconciled. As we practice in specific ways towards cultivating, towards prompting metta, loving-kindness, and as it develops and grows itself, we could say, through our practice of awareness, mindful awareness, our practice of immediate presence, there's a natural unfolding, a natural ripening of patience, of confidence, fearlessness, trust, happiness. Through the process of our practice, there's a natural opening, a natural ripening of a loving heart. The various flavors of ill will, hostility, judgment, hatred, dislike, jealousy, either towards ourselves or towards others, it begins to subside. The practice and the development of metta weakens these states. Metta secludes, or we could say cloisters, the heart, the mind, from anger, from fear. These strong energies that move through our mind and move through our body begin to weaken, they begin to fade under the strong light of a loving heart. The more moments of metta, the less moments of anger, worry, anxiety, fear, grief. It's not possible to feel unconditional friendship, unconditional love, and fear simultaneously. The fact is, we only feel one thing at a time, even though it may happen very quickly. So the more moments of metta, the more moments that are taken up, we could say, with metta, the less moments of fear, anger, anxiety. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, what can make me love? And his answer was, You are love when you're not afraid. I think that, essentially, each one of us wants to be loving. We want to be able to truly love. I think that's a natural, essential, healthy desire. And we know that when we're in this state, that there's not a sense of needing anything in that moment. We have all that we need. We are getting, get what we need. 
and it all just comes and it is as it is and that's just enough in that moment. When we're a loving person, when we can truly love. And so we begin the practice of unconditional friendship, unconditional loving kindness with ourselves. And we expand outward from here, eventually connecting and encompassing every form of life on the planet, every form of life in the universe. Those seen, those known, those unseen, those unknown. And in the process of the cultivation, the prompting of unconditional loving-kindness, is the purification of its opposites. In the classical teachings, the opposites are called the far enemies of metta. Anger, jealousy, envy, all of the forms that ill will takes. Also in the process of developing and deepening unconditional care, there's a purification of what are called the near enemies of metta, or what looks like, or what are conditioned habits of mind sometimes mistake for love. Greed, attachment, possessiveness. There are many, many, many ways um, that we're conditioned culturally around mistaking things like attachment, possessiveness, greed for love. The media, songs, films, literature. All of these venues really promoting confusion and anguish and telling us that love hurts. It's not love that hurts. It's the near and far enemies that hurt, that we suffer in. Unconditional loving kindness, that love which needs no conditions met to be met, in this there's no suffering. And of course it's essentially important that we don't pretend anything in our practice. That we don't think or act out of some idealized concept of what we think a loving, compassionate person is. How we think we should be if we're really a spiritual person. It's really essential that we don't pretend anything. And we come from where we are in this moment, whatever moment that is. In our practice, our formal practice, and our life as our practice, we have the opportunity to meet, to come face to face with the, and recognize actually, not just meet them, but really recognize all the conditional states of mind that aren't metta. We have the opportunity to meet them and recognize them without identifying with them as who we are. 
through this growing heart of loving-kindness, of friendship for ourselves, we can learn to accept that these states arise and pass, that they come and go, just like all phenomena. The expanding capacity of our heart, our mind, actually allows us to explore these conditional states of mind with less judgment, with more spaciousness, to actually begin to see them as they really are, to see these states of mind in their specific, particular characteristics, and to know the universal characteristics of any of these states, the impermanent, ephemeral nature of any and all of these states, and to know the suffering, the anguish that is present in becoming attached, becoming identified with these states, attached and identified as who we are, and to know the unsatisfactory experience or suffering that's experienced in trying to grasp on to any of these states and taking them on as who we are. We begin to see through our practice the totally conditional, contingent, not-self nature of these states. The fact that mind states, such as anger, fear, jealousy, possessiveness, attachment, greed, are conditional, contingent states, totally dependent on an infinite myriad of conditions coming together in just that moment. And then there's jealousy. Then there's greed. And then they disappear. This is a poem that was written about a thousand years ago, written by a Buddhist nun and it's called metta. If you develop love truly great, rid of the desire to hold and possess, that strong, clear love, untainted by lust, that love which does not expect to be repaid, that love which is firm but not grasping, enduring but not tied down, gentle and settled, diamond hard but not hurting, helpful but not interfering, cool and refreshing, giving more than taking, dignified but not proud, soft but not weak, that love which leads to enlightenment, then you will be washed of all ill will. During this past year, um, I read a book uh, called Life is So Good. It's a book about and by a man named George Dawson, who is 103 years old, a black man, 103 years old, 
who, as far as I know, is still well and alive. He grew up um, on his family's farm in East Texas, and he is the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family, and so he was never able to attend school, and he never learned how to read, until he decided just a few years ago to attend a literacy program at the age of 98. And he learned how to read. <laughs> and then he wrote a book. <laughs> and it's really an amazing book. Very inspiring, very illuminating. In it, he, we could kind of give it a, a, an overview of, it's a description of how he learned to read the world and survive in it. At one point uh, in the book, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard Glaubman is the man who um, helped George write the book. And they're talking together um, about how George, who at the age of 101, is still living alone and doing just fine, as George says. And this is Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Mm -hmm. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I've met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around? That's right, says George. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, is all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? <laughs> George, that's right. <laughs> be happy for what you have. Help somebody else instead of worrying. It will make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. Practice metta. <laughs> for much of his life, George endured the very deeply pervasive racism and segregation in the South. And during the time when he was growing up in East Texas, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of anywhere else in the United States. And in fact, the book begins with George at eight years old witnessing the lynching of a teenage boy who was one of George's heroes.
When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on a shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack those days like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected I would eat out on the porch with her dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, just as I was finishing my work, she came by. This is what she said. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. And as I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could sense a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. I said, that's right, I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways that you react to it. So George Dawson's Lion's Roar. The confidence, the strength, and the straightforwardness that comes from a loving, compassionate heart. The Lion's Roar. True love, metta love, comes from a knowing comes from an intuitive understanding of our essential connectedness in an impersonal way, actually. Our essential connectedness, our interconnectedness, whether we know the particular beings or not. The wisdom, the deep understanding of interconnectedness is metta itself. 
human heart, our human mind, is naturally, intuitively loving. Connection, metta, and the compassionate generosity of the heart are absolutely natural human capacities. So from this perspective, it's not about working to attain or to get something, but rather allowing our spiritual practice, be it vipassana, insight practice, or metta, to be loving-kindness, to be compassion itself, to be insight itself. So from this perspective, we could turn right around and face the heart of metta, face the heart of awareness itself, and ask, who loves? Who cares? There is metta. There is compassion. It's not mine. It belongs to no one. The understanding that our practice and any fruit of our practice is not an isolated, separate thing just for us. It becomes quite clear, quite obvious, over and over and over again, that in fact we are practicing for the sake of all beings. This is really the essence, the ground of metta the essence, the ground of great compassion. Shanti Deva, who was an 8th century Buddhist monk, and he wrote a book called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. In this book he talked uh, about the Bodhisattva's vow to achieve awakening for the sake of all living beings. And each morning and each evening, I chant or say, uh, may the positive, may all of the positive energies and fruits that manifest through our practice serve towards the welfare and the awakening of ourself and all beings, or ourself, or all beings everywhere, which includes ourselves. This is the practice of metta, the practice of compassion. This vow is practice. We say it over and over. It's part of the process of awakening. And it's an inevitable, the understanding of this is actually an inevitable consequence of the gradual development and the maybe sudden eruption of unconditional love into one's life. As we follow the Buddha's advice to practice and learn to let go, to live in and with the way of things, to abide in the utter interconnectedness, the total contingency, the selfless nature of all things, we open ourselves as Shanti Davis says, 
to the possibility of an unpredictable explosion of feeling. And our view of the world, which includes ourselves, changes. It's transformed. Along with the way that we feel about and relate to and in this world, that's also transformed. Slowly, slowly, and sometimes in a big burst. Our heart opens to the beauty, the joy, and also opens to the anguish, the suffering of others, which quite naturally prompts a spontaneous wish to lessen or alleviate that suffering. The emergence, the arising of metta, of compassion, begins to let us know that in truth, we're not alone, but intimately interwoven into a seamless web of sentient life. In an intensive practice period such as this, We have the opportunity to see how our self-centeredness, the smallness, the pettiness of our self-centered fantasies can create a sense of isolation, create a sense of separation. And I know for me, and I would be pretty sure for most of you, that when we spend time out in the natural world, the world of nature, we quite easily and quite naturally may experience a sense of wholeness, a sense of connection, the mirror of what has been called by one teacher the sublime selflessness of the natural world, which helps to put things into a clear and right perspective for us, this mirror of the natural world, which I spoke about, I think, the very first evening a little bit. And this is again from Shantideva. Just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied creatures not seen as limbs of life? With the awakening of the heart of metta, with the awakening of the heart of compassion, the notions of me and you, the fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you, begin to dissolve. Dissolve in relation to the way that we go about our life. That's what we mean by dissolve. Dissolve in relation to the way that we go about our life, how we relate to and in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally. Empathetic response to the sufferings and to the joys of life. And again from Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. 
and I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are in the same wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. About 16 years ago, my youngest son uh, came to visit me when I was living in Nepal. And we, uh, we were in Pokhara at one point, which is a beach town at the foot of the Himal. It's a point of departure for the treks that go up to the Annapurna Range. And a lot of tourists come there because they like to go trekking up in the Himal. So there are a number of places there that cater to tourists, cater to trekkers. We were at one of these places having lunch one day. It was an outdoor cafe, and they had loudspeakers with music to uh, supposedly for our enjoyment, we could say. <laughs> and this uh, particular day at this particular place, uh, Madonna was on the loudspeaker, <laughs> blaring, blaring very loudly singing, we could say. It's a material world. As my son and I were sitting there watching Nepal go by on this little dirt street in front of the restaurant. Right in front of us came a man on a cart with his hands, which were just stumps. He was coming in one direction. Coming in the other direction was a calf. And they stopped right in front of us, the man and the calf. The calf started licking the man. The man was quite, quite dirty. He appeared not to have bathed for maybe months, I don't know. Um, he had on a torn t-shirt and shorts with stumps, the stumps of his legs, and a cap. And the calf started licking the man. He took off his cap and the the calf licked his whole head, and the man just gave himself to the calf. Then he took off his t-shirt, and the calf licked his whole upper body, and the man turned his body and really gave himself to this calf, and the calf just bathed him all over, licking him. And, uh, you know, in India, cows are holy for the Hindus. So the man was not only getting a bath, which he looked like he really could use, it was a holy bath. And the calf and the man were having this relationship, both of them very happy. When the calf finished, the man threw his arms around the calf and hugged him, held him, and the calf very patiently just stood there until the man let go of the embrace. And then they both went on their way. And my son and I, after they both went on their way, we looked at each other, and tears were streaming down both our faces. Tears of an unconditional sense of caring, connection. 
tears of metta, tears of compassion, tears of a, an empathetic joy. And all the while, Madonna was still singing, blaring, it's a material world. Quite an amazing afternoon. There's a metaphor that's um, used towards understanding the scope of the divine abidings, the immeasurables. It's through the relationship, be it an ideal relationship, of a mother or a father with uh, her or his child. And I think it's a, a useful metaphor. Metta is like the parent's relationship to the baby or the very young child. That of complete, unconditional love in the midst of constant need. Constant need for care. All the dirty diapers, all the crying all the smiles, all the affection, unconditional love, compassion is likened to the mother or father's relationship to the child when it gets older and moves into adolescence. A loving, heartful compassion for all of the struggles, all of the hurts, all of the ups and downs that occur at that point in life. Empathetic joy, or sympathetic joy it's sometimes called, is likened to a parent's relationship to the child as it matures and has independent successes and independent happinesses in the world. And the parents taking delight, feeling happy themselves, for the child's successes, for the child's happinesses. And lastly, the fourth of the divine abidings, or immeasurable capacities of heart, equanimity, this balance of heart. The child becomes an adult and goes off into the world to live its own life in its own way. And the mother and the father still have a, a strong clear, unconditional love and a deep, caring compassion and are happy for the various successes and joys of their grown child's life. But there's a letting be, just a letting be, a balance of wise non-interference, a kind of cooling of attachment in the midst of the loving relationship between the parent and the child. Things are as they are. That's equanimity. The heart, the mind that has practiced and moved more and more deeply into the sublime states of the divine abiding metta, compassion, appreciative joy or empathetic joy and and equanimity 
has a purity, a tranquility, and a firmness. It's a mind, a heart that's collected and easily focused. There's an experiential understanding of the essential interconnectedness, the total contingency of all things. And there's a freedom from much of the selfishness, the self-centeredness that's so binding. All of this then provides a foundation from which we can live our life, live our life fully, and also the foundation from which the fully liberating insight into the empty, selfless nature of all things can spring. The confidence, the strength, the straightforwardness that comes from a loving, compassionate, wise heart, this tremendous fullness of energy is what the Buddha called the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle, because the power of his words was born out of a loving care and compassion. And I'd like to close the talk with reading, and I have to read it, <laughs> a story to you, or part of a story. It's about a young Native American woman <clears throat> named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. She was born in 1974, March 15th at the Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Sue Ann grew up with her sisters and her mother in a three-bedroom house in Pine Ridge. And even today, people talk about what a strict mother Big Chick, Chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights went on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind, unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were totally out. In an inter interview when she was a teenager, Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. This is a true story, obviously, I didn't say that. But. Chick Big Crow was and is strongly anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick belonged for many years to the small but adamant minority that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came, came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her until the grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, made a video urging her message in a stern and wooden tone. And as a high schooler traveled to dis different distant cities for conventions of like-minded teens. 
I once asked Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach, who's also a friend of her family, whether Sue Ann's public, public advocacy on this issue wasn't tricky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul Bradford said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. <laughs> she was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me. It dawned on me that if a 16-year-old girl could have the guts to say things, say these things, then maybe us adults should pay attention too. I haven't had a drink since the day she died. As strongly as Chick forbade certain activities, she encouraged the girls in sports. At one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country, running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. <laughs> she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and sisters got very tired of the sound. <laughs> For variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Sue Ann tend to, tended to get into foul trouble in basketball games as the referees ruled strictly in tournament games and Sue Ann was used to a more headlong style of play. In the district playoffs against the team from Red Cloud, Sue Ann scored 31 points. Some people who live in the cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. In their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that is centuries old. When teams from Red Cloud play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. The Pine Ridge coast coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Lead to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the prime, prime Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, a woo-woo-woo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey, who was the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. 
Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey, tossed her the ball, and then she stepped into the jump ball circle at the center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then she started to sing. Sue Ann began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. She dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, ran a lap around the court dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop with the fans cheering loudly now. <clears throat> of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. And the author closes the article saying, I cannot find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. The lion's roar. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.